Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. Good morning. All of you with your Hope Church swag going on. I love to see it. I love this church. And uh, it's good to see your faces. None of you saw me trip just now. None of you saw that. I'll leave it to my sister to make fun of me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, here we are again. Uh, Good to see you all. This is a very exciting time of the year, probably my favorite time of the year, uh, because football's starting up. And I don't know if this means anything, but my team, the Washington Commanders, went 3-0 in the preseason. It means nothing. Also, just so you know, a bunch of people uh, got together at my house a couple days ago, and we had our fantasy football draft. So if you get, you know, hear all of the trash talk, that's where that's coming from. It's all good. We have such a good time with that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, about everything uh, this week. And uh, especially in a series like this, which I'll get to in a second, but if you had told me 30 years ago I would be a pastor, I would have laughed in your face. There's no possible way that's happening. And uh, why I was thinking about 30 years ago is because exactly 30 years ago, I walked onto a college campus for the very first time. Yes, that was me, my college experience 30 years ago. uh, 1993 is when I walked on to my college. I had never been on a college campus before, and I was thinking about that because I'm seeing everybody's posts about people going back to school, and I want to give a shout-out to all of our college students uh, that have gone away and are watching right now, Um, or will watch later because you're probably sleeping right now. And I want to especially give a shout out to the parents because my daughter, hopefully, God willing, goes next year and I think I'm already feeling that. So those of you who are doing that for the first time, man, my heart goes out to you. Um, But yeah, so 30 years ago, stepped onto college campus for the first time. I I stepped on as a physical education major. And what you need to know about that is before I even took one class in uh, that in that area, I decided to change my major. I went to the psychology department. I ended up getting my degree in guidance and counseling because here's the thing. I knew I wanted to do something that made a difference. That was kind of where my head was at. And growing up as a Christian and in church and in relationship with God and stuff, um, accepting a personal relationship with him, I eventually remember thinking all of this. If this is true, if all of this is true, If Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, then it only makes sense. It only makes sense to me that I figure out a way to help others see that too. And so I decided at that point, I think maybe the way to do this is to start a Christian school. You see, I had gone to a Christian school growing up, like K through 12, basically. Um, And then I went to Christian college and all that 
kind of craziness, you know, one of the most conservative Christian colleges in the nation probably. And I had seen the good, and I had seen the bad, and I had really seen the ugly when it comes to Christianity. And for the first time in my life, just after college, I started to see my friends who had grown up just like me just begin to leave everything behind, leave God behind, leave church behind, leave everything that they had known. And it was a fascinating time for me because I was like, man, this is intriguing. It didn't really surprise me. But I was intrigued by it. And again, I said, I mean, I, maybe I need to do something about this. See, the Christian culture that we were in, um, though I think in many ways it was, they were trying to be sincere. It was not a culture of grace. It was not, it was not a culture of acceptance. It was a, it was a culture of rules and regulations and closed-mindedness and security and guilt and fear and some of you listening to this right now and say, oh, well, not much has changed about the church. And you may be right about that. So in my mind, surely something had to change. Because I knew also, because I had grown up this, what Jesus said about life. And he says, I have come so that you can have abundant life, that you can have it to the full. But it did not seem like and at least in my circles, that people knew at all what that was supposed to be about or what that meant. So it was around this time that I was starting to see this that I began to get that stirring. And this is what we talked about last week. And if you missed the message last week, I want you to go back and listen to that. But this stirring became a part of my heart and in my life, and I began to see things I had not seen before, and God allowed me to have some kind of vision for moving forward. And so one day, I got a call from the church I had grown up in. You know, it was one of those churches kind of in that circle I just talked about that I was just describing. And they asked me to consider to come on being the youth pastor. And, and long story short, I said, no, not going to happen. Um, but eventually, as I started considering it more and as they pressed on me a little bit, I started thinking, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, I kind of grew up here, maybe I can make a difference and help people to see that. Maybe this was God's path for me. I, I didn't have any issues or fears around being a youth pastor per se. My, my, my struggle or my fear was, did I want to be a part of a church culture that I had some questions about? And I knew that was going to be hard. But about 25 years ago, roughly, for, for the first time, I entered church world as we know it. And I say all of that to say one thing. Here I am all these many years later, and I am still compelled by the same thought. And it's this, if all of this is true, <laughs> if all of this is true, if Jesus really wants people to experience fullness in him and freedom in him, it only makes sense that I need to figure out how to help others see that too. That has never changed. It has never left me. Listen, listen. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then you have a definition and you have a mission. 
If you call yourself a Christian, you have a definition and you have a mission. What does that term Christian mean? Well, uh, let me just say this. Uh, there, it's only used three times in all of the Bible. Christian is not the word that was typically used. They used other words like disciple and whatever. But it simply means follower of Christ. It means anointed one. It could have that kind of a, a meaning. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, as he was describing what a Christian, and he, he used the term little Christs. Because if we're supposed to be like Christ... So if we're supposed to be like Christ, if we're supposed to follow Christ, then, then I had to ask myself, then what is Christ's mission? And he tells us in Scripture, Mark 16, 15, Jesus tells the people around him, his disciples, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. By the way, do you notice that? Good news. Not the, not the, not the bad news or the, reg, you know, the rules and regulation. and No, no, no. no. Go... And preach good news to the world. So what was Christ's mission? Well, he tells us that too. He had kind of a personal mission. He says, my mission is to seek and save the lost. Listen, I, he, he, he talks about this in this passage. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read this for you. I think I have it on the screen as well. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax collector in the region. And he had become very rich. So here we have, we have a story in the Bible that's talking about an encounter that Jesus had with someone, okay? This guy's name was Zacchaeus. So this guy Zacchaeus, he tried to see Jesus and get a look at him, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, he climbed a tree beside the road because Jesus was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. By the way, notice that. Your home. I'm going to go to where you are. Okay? Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Here we go. The drama starts, as it always does. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. And meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. See, something happened. Zacchaeus had an experience with Jesus, and it changed his life. It changed his heart. And so he started to say, you know what? If this is true, then this is what I need to do. So, so Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For, here we have it, the son of man, that's Jesus, that's what he called himself, came to seek and to save those who are lost. If you call yourself a Christian, you have a definition and you have a mission. And that mission is to go, just like Jesus did, and share the good news. And so my question, one of my questions would be, how deeply has that set into your heart and into your life, if you call yourself a Christian? Is that something that has gripped you? You see, we are gripped with a sense of mission 
and vision when we see a problem that needs to be solved. Every vision, if you're taking notes, write this down. Every vision begins with seeing a problem and feeling compelled to address it. Every vision begins with seeing a problem and feeling compelled to address it. So we talked about this as we started this series called Moving Forward last week. This whole series is about vision and mission, in particular for Hope Church, but also for yourself as well personally. And when we talk about that stirring that comes up in our hearts just like mine, you see a problem and you say, if this is true, I have to do something about it. One of the best messages I ever heard was a message called Holy Discontent. I've actually preached it here before. It was originally uh, preached by a guy named Bill Hybels, who was a pastor out in the Midwest. This thing, he, and he says, you know, he uses the illustration of Popeye. And if you grew up watching Popeye like I did, he goes, I, I can't stand it anymore. Right? But that's, he, he said, that's what it's like when you have this thing in your heart that you just see that and say, I have to do something about it. It's a holy discontent. Every vision begins with seeing a problem and feeling compelled to address it. And I'm still compelled with that same vision that I had 25 years ago. And the leadership of this church is still compelled by that same vision, to go, seek, and save, to show the joy of Jesus. The world we live in has a problem. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, we're going to look at a bunch of Jesus stories today. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me. And be my disciple. There we go. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up. He followed him. And later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they started drama and said, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, let me just stop for one second. Because this is all well and good, and church people look at this and say, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But you know what? We often do the same exact thing. Be careful. Be very, very careful when you look at this story and we look at that language because I think we have a tendency when we get in our minds, this is the way it needs to be. This is what, And we expect certain things of people who are not believers, not followers of Jesus. And our mind goes places and our words go places that they never should. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he said this. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this. I want to show you mercy, but not offer sacrifices. And I am not going to break that down. I think you are able to see what Jesus is saying here. He kind of explains it a little bit here. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know 
they are sinners. So here's a piece of Hope Church vision that I want you to hear very clearly. It's one of the things that drives us and motivates us and will going forward. That the church ought to be a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. Yes. By the way, that phrase is not original with me. I do not claim for it to be original. But it, it, No, I'm serious, but it takes right out of that scripture. Guys, I am out to find sick people. I don't, I'm not here for the healthy people. And our church needs to realize that we are a hospital for sinners, not a place where Christians just come and cruise for the rest of their life. That is not church. You see, many around us are sick. This is the problem. Not physically, but spiritually. And so I say, if all of this is true, if all of this is true, if Jesus genuinely cared for the spiritually sick, it only makes sense to me that I want to help figure out how to help people see that too. Can the average person that's sick heal themselves, help themselves? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have this really bad habit of going to like WebMD when I'm not feeling well. You feel me on that? And you start reading that, oh, that anxiety starts to set in. But let's, let's not overthink this. I, I guess sometimes you can help yourself, but generally speaking, when you get sick, it's most likely that you are going to have to go to a hospital or to your doctor, find that professional who can not only identify the issue you're having and prescribe the medicine you need, and then set up a healing, you know, a care plan for you. I happened to be in a hospital uh, this week. I asked my wife, is it okay if I shared this story? Uh, she has uh, dealt with chronic pain uh, since high school. She has um, tension headaches, and these tension headaches do not go away. We have tried every single kind of doctor over the years, medicines. Uh, she, it went so far as she had a device implanted inside of her that would help, uh, that would, was supposed to help alleviate this pain. A couple years ago, after about 15 years of having it in, we had that removed from her body. And so now she is starting this whole round with new doctors and new treatments because it's come a long way in the last 20 years. And so she went this week uh, over to uh, Hartford Hospital and she received a nerve block in her neck and head. And, and it was pretty gross, by the way, because I was in that room. So we come into the, the room and there's someone there, the receptionist, who's there to welcome and receive us. Hi, how you doing? You're Sarah. Okay, fill this out, do this, that, whatever thing. Then another person came out, brought her and us, to, you know, to the room. Inside that room was another person. Hi, I'm so-and-so. This is what we're going to be doing. Took a great time, great deal of care to explain. Begin to ask questions. Next thing you know, another doctor comes in. It was really funny because she's like, hey, I, again, I don't remember her name. I'm so-and-so. I'm the PA. I'm going to be assisting the doctor today. And I, you know, as we kind of were waiting time there, I said, how, how long have you been, you know, in this office? She goes, this is my very first day. <laughs> but she was very nice, very sweet. 
So now there's like five of us in the room. Then the doctor comes in. He does the procedure. Now, this is not a, a, like, a, it wasn't a little thing. I mean, it was. I mean, it's like you go home, but there's, there's a lot of invasive things that happen. So there's this care team of like five people now in the room. And then as we were you know, sitting up there checking on her constantly, hey, how are you feeling? Do you need a drink of water? Do you need this, whatever? And then a woman, I, I want to say her name was Aria. It was something like this. She opens the door and she says, hey, Sarah, I'm checking in on you. I just want to know, do you need a hug? And it just struck me. And Sarah, you know, by the way, she's laying face down, so her face is, is kind of like, and she's kind of feeling drowsy, and she's like, no, 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 not, I don't want that. She goes, okay, I'm going to be outside. If you need me for anything at all, let me know. So again, after a couple minutes, we get up, we walk, I'm helping her down the aisle. She comes up to her, she gives her this huge hug. And I was thinking later, I was like, Sarah, I think I have a sermon illustration for this week. Look at that care team and how they took care of my wife when she went to the hospital. I see that very much the same way as I see this church. When you have the greeters doing their thing, the people at Guest Central doing their thing, the people across the aisle doing their thing, are you life group people doing their thing? Because by the way, I can't visit all of you in the hospital. I can't, I can't possibly know everything that goes on in your life. I can't solve all of your issues. But when you have people around you, this is why we love life groups so much. They can help take care of you. They're a part of the care team. And when they need help, then you are there for them. Last week I shared some facts and statistics about the grim reality of our culture and its relationship to God and the church, and I am not going to rehearse all of those. But if I bottom line it, my take is it's possible that many people don't see the need. They don't know that they're sick. And I don't mean that in a derogatory term by any sense at all. We have all been sick, and a lot of us still are, spiritually speaking. But it's hard for people to see that. Do I need intervention for this? Probably not. In fact, I'm seeing, personally, more outright rejection of outside help when it comes to spiritual condition. And I think every culture has struggled with this. I think every culture has unique challenges to the reception of need for their current spiritual condition. But we, here's what I would say. I think we are very sick on ourselves Oh, yeah, this is corny. We call it me-itis or whatever. I don't know. Because one challenge I think we face in modern American culture, and, and by the way, I would argue, I would argue that this has always been, since America's founding, a problem from its inception, is that we fight fiercely for individual independence and autonomy. And what that has led to is a culture that puts an extremely high value on self-help and self-betterment and self-fulfillment. And I'm not saying all of that is bad. So again, just use discretion as I speak. But generally speaking, we are just consumed with ourselves. So this week, I took to Google and I, meant, I Googled something like, what does it mean to live a fulfilled life? It was something, something like that. And every site that I looked at, everything that I looked at, these two things were at the top. Every single one, and then it kind of varied from there. Number one, reflect on what you want was the, was the um, advice. 
Number two, take time for self-care. Again, I'm not saying these are bad. I've talked about self-care before. But let's keep going down the list. Believe in yourself. Stop letting opinions of others control your life. Don't surrender control to other people. Accept yourself. All of these things, when I look at that list, it's about you, 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 me, 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 me. I went to Google Next and I searched up, you know, where do you find meaning in life? And generally speaking, all of these were the same as well. The first one, far and away, outweighed every single other. Can anybody guess what it might have been? How do you find or where do you find meaning in life? Anybody want to guess? Uh, yeah, I, I led you into that one wrong. Sorry, yeah. Not yourself. Family. 70% of the people that answered this question said, you know, where we find meaning in life is through family. Then it drops precipitously. 34% of people say, hey, when I'm looking for meaning in life, you have to have career or work needs to bring meaning in life. Third thing, 23%, money and wealth. If I could just get more, if I could just make more, if I could, you know, have enough in my bank account, that's going to bring meaning and fulfillment in my life. We finally get to number four, 20% of people or so say faith or spirituality. I'm not talking about God. I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about just spirituality. 20%. I don't have time to break that down. I could see that as a teaching series in the future for sure. But suffice it to say, our spiritual condition is at stake. Our eternity is at stake. That's the problem. You see, every vision sees a problem, and is compelled to address it because what is at stake is unbearable. It's the second point I want to talk about with vision today. Every vision sees a problem and is compelled to address it because what is at stake is unbearable. And I'm going to talk about this in the context of the church, but plug it in for yourself. What is God put inside of you, that you can't stand no more, that you need to do something about it because you see a problem, you want to do something about it because what's at stake is important. Well, I think our present is at stake and I think our future is at stake. When I look at the general person, me included, when I look at a life, I know that not only is my future at stake, but even my very present day is at stake. Jesus had another interaction with an, yet another person in Scripture in John chapter 3. And this person, and by the way, you'll know this verse that's coming up, really wanted to know what was at stake. Really wanted to know what it meant to be a Christian. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Drop down to John 3, 16. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes on him will not perish, but will have eternal life. You see, what the sick and dying world needs to hear 
is that there is someone who would change the future and can change your eternity. John 10.10, here's the great fight here. Here's the great tension. Jesus says, and I already read this, my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, but I didn't read the first part of that verse before. It says the thief's purpose, the enemy, the one who's against us, the one who's anti-God, anti-Christian, he says the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's not your friend. It's not just cute. And that affects our present. I'm going to read this verse, Romans 7.24. I'm not sure I've remember this verse before. It says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who is going to free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And when I read these words, I think, oh my goodness, I think that's how everybody feels. We just feel, although maybe we can't put, you know, uh, language to it, we feel something's got to give. Something's got to be better. I can't believe this is at stake. All the, I feel trapped. How do I become happy? How do I feel fulfilled? feel like I'm in chains. I'm dominated by these thoughts or by this culture, whatever. What's at stake is eternity and our present day living. But what I would say about this is that we have a solution. And the only solution is a savior. The only solution is a savior. The only solution is a, uh, solution is a redeemer. The only solution is a friend of sinners. Someone who will come alongside us and say, I got you. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And even he offers himself very clearly. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way forward. I am the truth that you need. I am the life that you desire. No one finds a way forward to the Father except through me. Let me be very clear, and this is what I want to say about what I was leading up to. It's about Christ's performance, always not our own. It's about Christ's performance only, not our own. Self-help, self-betterment, that's all good. I know it's a dominant theme in culture, but the church is here to be a hospital for sick people. And one of the messages, the main message that we have to say is Jesus is really, at the end of the day, the only solution to happiness and fulfillment in life. Education's not going to fix it. Better laws aren't going to fix it. For crying out loud, policy, politics is not going to fix it. Listen, again, I'm not trying to be uh, weird when I say we're sick. We do, we are sick. In fact, God would even go further. In the scripture, he says we are dead. We are actually dead. And something that is dead can't, help themselves. There needs to be supernatural life breathed in to the dead thing. 
And Jesus is that supernatural life that each person needs. And so if all of this is true, I'm going back to that same phrase I asked myself 30 years ago. If all of this is true, and if you're with me, if all of this is true, then here's it, here it is, and here's my title of the sermon for the day right at the end, then we got work to do. You see, the church exists to help introduce people to the solution. Why? Because the church is a reflection of God. The church is God in this world. It is the hope of the world. Withdrawing is not the solution for the church. Assimilating to culture is not the solution to church. We are a hospital, not a country club. Listen to this. I love this verse. So Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Oh my goodness, that sounds like so many people that I know. And he says to his disciples, the ones who follow Jesus, if I can use C.S. Lewis terms, the little Christs, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. That's us. <laughs> That's us. We're supposed to go. That's how I started this whole thing. He says, go and do it. Now go and do it. And he says, it's the church's job. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says this, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and do it to the unseen rulers and authority in heavenly places. And it was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The church, I didn't even have this in my notes, says, Jesus, nothing can prevail against it. Not even the gates of hell. That's why it's his eternal plan. The church means something, is my point. Yeah, attendance is down. Giving is down. But that just makes more of a mission field for us to go and to seek and to save. And so what does that mean for us? Well, as I wrap up, here's just a couple thoughts. When I think of church, when I think of Hope Church, and when I think of this fundamental idea that we and the leadership here are looking at, this is a hospital, not a country club, that's going to lead to us making certain kinds of decisions about what we do and what we don't do. We're not going to fill up church world with events and ministries that are constant and daily and all the time. And here's one of the main reasons why. Here's one of the main drivers. We need you. You need to be with friends, family, neighbors who desperately need to see light and grace in their life. I'm not saying church things are bad. I'm not saying events are bad. We do plenty. But it's the heart of me that you have a spot to go that you can be light and salt to those around you who are sick and dying and whose eternity is at stake when we think about events we're always thinking about non-believers people outside these walls when we think about even our Sunday morning service even the kind of language that we use 
we are thinking about those who are looking for the first time and seeing Christianity, God, the church, for the very first time. See, this whole thing shapes everything that we do as a church. And as we move forward together, I truly hope that this vision is crystal clear. I'm going to end with one last story. Again, not in my notes. Uh, every Monday night, um, you may or may not know, we have a prayer team that meets here. And they're awesome. And it's a group of people that have this calling for prayer. And they, they pray for everything. They, they pray for personal requests that come in throughout the week, which many of you submit. They pray for leadership here at the church. They pray for our town. They pray for our country. It's not a church service. It's a group of people who just get together and pray. And they do it on Monday nights. And when uh, they proposed that idea, I said, oh, that's, that's fine. I mean, I'm all for prayer. In fact, I might talk about that next week. But I'm not going to be there. And they didn't ask me why, because they get it. But I was like, you know what? Monday nights is when I play basketball and when I play softball. And that's my connection, one of them, to just being around lost people. And so you could do the church night without the past, uh, the prayer night without the pastor. I'm going to be mingling it up and mixing it up with people that I love in this town that need light in their life for as little as I could bring, as little as I could bring, whatever that means. I'm also arrogant and think I could still play. But I hope you're making that decision too because you, listen, you need to structure and be intentional about that with your life. If you are not doing that and you're just about gathering of churches and the next conference and the next worship thing, okay, fine, but you're missing out on one of Jesus' most important things. Go. You know, it was interesting. He doesn't say bring them to church either. He went to their house. <laughs> I hope that's not lost on you. Even Matthew later, he goes, come to my house. I have a whole bunch of people coming over. This is what we're going to do. So that vision is what I want to catch on for this church. As we move forward, some of the reasons why we make decisions we do is because that's one of our filters. And I hope that you, as we go through this series, however long it is, because I'm honestly not even sure yet, that you can grab onto these things and say, yeah, I'm with you. That this church is a place that those who are unbelieving and lost and sick can come and feel the power of God and life transformation could change because we're a hospital. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that this uh, message as, again, feeble as it is, that you would just take it and do something with it, that you would inspire this church, continue to inspire this church to be a place for lost people. That we would consider ourselves intentionally building things in our lives to go and to be with. That we would not put undue expectations on people who are not believers, whose eyes have not been opened. God, that we would love well and that we would serve well and that we would just have a care team ready to go. God, we love you and we, I thank you for this church. I pray for your Holy Spirit 
to come down on this place. That we would move forward together in unity and in harmony with clear vision and clear purpose. In Jesus' name.